Adam, you forwarded me a pretty interesting email recently. Isn't every email I forward you interesting? Absolutely not. No, no, oh, no comment. No. Thanks for your support there, guys. <laughs> so what about it was interesting? Yeah, the email was a sort of heads up for customers of this company just saying, this is what a phishing email from us would look like. Look for these telltale signs of a phishing email. A phishing email from us? You said a phishing email from yeah. us. Yeah, let, let's let's start over here. This email is from a company that we do business with. And instead of being promotional or anything like that, it was just a heads up for their customers to know what to look for in a phishing email. So it had just a couple of good, helpful little tips to say, check the sender email address, check for the domain, look for a couple of these little suspicious red flags here. And I thought it was a nice example of just uh, sort of good citizenship from a corporation. Just saying, we're not going to get anything out of this, but this is how you as our customers can stay informed and protect yourselves against phishing scams. This is a great example of a company doing the right thing. Um, today's guest is the story about how companies don't always do the right thing. Indeed. Yes. And with that, welcome to What the Hack, a show about hackers, scammers, and the people they go after. I'm Adam, cyber truth speaker. I'm Bo, cyber magic mind swiller. And I'm Travis, cyber alpaca spittle. Ew. That's disgusting. And today we hear the story of an actor turned corporate spy. Robert, welcome to our show. Really appreciate you coming on with us. I read your book. So I know you spent a lot of time in Hollywood, Malibu, and places like that. But tell us where you're coming to us from now. Uh, well, I'm in Malibu. I'm at my house, uh, you know, in my dining room. Um, my wife is away, so therefore I can actually have the call in a place that I actually look good and the lighting is good. Normally, she's got me out in my converted tool shed. Uh, which is exactly what it sounds like, a converted tool shed, pretty rough, you know, plywood on the walls. That's normally where I do these calls. So I'm, uh, today you, you're getting the best, the best of me. I know you grew up in Philadelphia in a family that, that had an automobile business, but your real love in life was something different. Yeah, so, you know, my uh, great-grandfather sold horse carriages before cars were invented, became one of the first automobile dealers in Philadelphia. My grandfather took over that dealership. My father took over that dealership. I was supposed to take over that dealership. But when I was in college, I fell in love with acting. And I really wanted to move to New York to be an actor. I didn't know anybody that had been, forget about an actor, I didn't know anybody that had ever been an artist. So it seemed crazy to me, but I finally got up the guts to do it. And of course... Artists, actors, musicians need survival jobs. And who stumbles into a career as a corporate spy? But that's what happened to me. All right, so we're going to talk about that more briefly. But that's why you're on the show today. We often look at how scammers and hackers go after us. But corporate spying is similar to other forms of hacking because they all involve social engineering. Whether it's a phishing email or a corporate spy posing as an employee to gather any information they're not supposed to have. That's right. I mean, so this is one of those rare chances we have on the show where we get to talk to someone on the other side, you know, a quote unquote bad guy, but not a bad guy, just someone on the hacking side of, of things. We don't always get to talk to that person. So this is cool. Hopefully we'll learn how to stay safer too. Yeah, there's that too, <laughs> I guess. But uh, so Robert, 
Before we get to your day job as a spy, if you were looking for part-time work, why didn't you just sell cars with your dad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, when I graduated uh, from UPenn in Philadelphia, I did go to work for my father and um, turned out to be pretty damn ironic because the trickery of car sales just didn't sit right with me. It just didn't feel right for to me, um, which, of course, you know, is kind of hysterical when I end up going into corporate spying, which was far more ethically challenging than car sales. So what is the what is I'm just curious. I'm always this is this is of perennial interest to me. What kind of things do car dealers do that's so tricky? Well, look, I, it's not, you know, I'm not going to bag on car salespeople because it's all sales, right? At the end of the day, all sales is I'm going to sell you my product for as much money as I can, right? Um, and sometimes you're selling a product that's a great product and people love to buy like the iPhone. And sometimes you're selling a product that people don't want to buy, like the first Hyundais when they came out, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, and yet there were salespeople selling all of these products, whether they're good products or bad products, and they're trying to sell the products for as much money as they can, you know? And, and so, you know, when you're a salesperson, you learn tricks and things that you can do to try to make that happen, you know? And a lot of that, you know, is verbal, you know, where you're, you know, you're, um, you know, schmoozing people, you're bullshitting people uh, about mm -hmm. how good the product is when maybe it's not so good and why it should cost this when maybe it shouldn't you know, maybe you shouldn't be charging them that, you know, I mean, uh, cars for, as an example, you know, there's no set price on a vehicle, you know, there's the manufactured suggested retail price on the window sticker. But nowadays a buddy of mine is, is trying to buy a car right now and dealers are charging way above the MSRP, which I never heard of when, you know, in all my yep, years. Yep. Right. I think sales is a, you know, is a, is an honorable profession, but there is trickery involved in a, in good sales. You know, you're trying to sell and make as much money as you can. The more money you make for your company, the more it goes into your pocket because most sales is commission-based and commission-oriented. That really plays into to every business. And, and, you know, certainly it's all about, it's all about selling the dream or at least yeah. getting enough uh, people to buy into whatever it is you're trying to do. Yeah. which is what social engineering is, which is what we talk about all the time. Absolutely, yeah. Well, that's also what actors do, more or less, right? Did your acting training kind of come in handy with your spying? Yeah, so did that come up during the interview? Or, like, how'd you get a job as a spy? Yeah, you know, I, I finally got the guts to move to New York. I only knew one person in the entire, you know, New York City, the boroughs of, you know, the five boroughs. And he had this crazy job. One day he mentioned it. Then he shut up right away. Like he knew he'd been told, don't tell people about this job. And I said, dude, I'm broke. You got, I need a job. I'm desperate. And so he very reluctantly got me an interview. I went to the Upper East Side, which, you know, as you guys know, and your audience may know, is kind of the, the wealthiest area of Manhattan, the old money area of Manhattan. And I go uh, doorman building, go up to the penthouse. This woman lets me in the nicest apartment I've ever seen for this job interview. She never asked me anything about my skills. She never tells me anything about the job. I leave as confused as I went in. But my, my buddy calls and says, you got the job, but don't get too excited because no one is able to do this job. And that was kind of the beginning of my apprenticeship as a corporate spy. You went into this to see this woman. She knew you were an actor. You're obviously um, absurdly handsome, and so um, like absurd. They go, "Oh my gosh, who is this guy? He could he could probably uh, get the birds to come out of the trees and recite poetry." 
Was that part of the interview? Were you, were you, were, do you think that she was actually trying to see if you were the kind of person people would tell stuff to? Well, look, she, she ran this small spying firm. So this is a woman in the late 80s who's running a small spying firm that spies on Wall Street companies. So, uh, and, she, and her firm was very successful. So she really was kind of groundbreaking because back in the day, women, you know, were not, you know, they were not running businesses, Wall Street related businesses. They weren't executives. And so she had started this business. It became very successful, but she only hired actors. And at first she only hired women. Um, my buddy who got me the job, we were the two, the first two men she ever hired. And she really didn't want to hire us. She only believed that women could do the kind of spying that, that she needed. Now, when you say spying, what kind of spying are you talking about? Are we talking about intellectual property? We, what are we talking about? Yeah. So, um, what we did, um, and, and we did go in person a little bit, like we go to a bar, we go to the U S open, we go to a conference, but we learned very quickly that we could get far more information using the anonymity of the good old fashioned social engineering phone call or what I call a ruse call, um, to get people inside corporations to release information that they should never tell us, whether it was back in the day, you know, pre-LinkedIn, nobody knew who worked at a firm. Nobody knew who was in a group. Nobody knew who was running the group. And most importantly, nobody knew who the rock stars were in the group, who were the top salespeople, the top traders, the top bankers, the top developers, designers, whatever the product area was. And we quickly learned that Every firm has a metric that they use to rank their employees. And we would learn what those metrics were. If it was a sales team, we would get the sales number. So we could literally tell who was number one on the sales desk, who was number two on the sales desk. And as you can imagine, you know, I'm a big football fan and I always go back to the football analogy. You know, when Tom Brady left the New England Patriots, I haven't seen them in a Super Bowl since. But when he went to Tampa Bay, the very next year they won the Super Bowl, right? So that's how valuable poaching a top person from a rival can be. And corporate America is just as cutthroat and competitive as uh, any, any sports league. When you say this uh, woman set up a company to perform this corporate espionage, was it fully legal? Mm. I guess, in other words, did she say, you know, corporate espionage, comma, LLC, or was it something, was there a front <laughs> to that? Like, how did, how did she present that to, uh, say, the IRS, for instance? I can tell now if I go on the LinkedIn, I can find you the corporate spying firms. They never say corporate spying. They say things like this, competitive intelligence, corporate analysis, corporate research. You know, they use all of these pseudonyms, but what they're doing often is some form of corporate espionage, right? Because they can't advertise that. Um, so this woman's firm was, um, you know, like her initials associates. Um, and, you know, in, in my firm, when I had my firm, it was, you know, RK Research, a corporate intelligence firm. Um, but, mm -hmm. you know, we were, we were, you know, spying. We were, you know, doing corporate espionage, finding out whatever we could, which started with the organizational information, which was incredibly valuable in the era before LinkedIn. But then we would kind of piggyback off of that and build that out. And then we would learn other information, whether it was future plans, expansion plans, um, whether a firm, you know, had a new product in the pipeline, what the product was, how they were going to price that product, who their clients were, all kinds of information, you know, the proverbial playbook that a rival would want to know so that they could beat their, their, their competitors. Would a corporate spy of the, of the ilk you, you, you were 
go after a secret recipe, a specific business specific asset like that? For sure. Yeah, for sure. You know, we, there were a couple of lines I didn't want to cross um, because, you know, obviously, and I think you guys kind of were hinting at this about whether the job was legal. And in the very beginning, um, the woman who hired me, we went and we sat down with an attorney and the attorney said, look, what you're doing is in the gray, the very dark gray of legality. He basically put us on warning that we had to tread very, very lightly because it was highly uh, possible, if not highly likely, that at some point someone was going to come after us. And of course, in the book, people do come after us. So we, you know, we, there were a couple of things I didn't want to do. You know, there were times I would learn secrets that I could have traded on, which of course is insider trading. And that was something I was never in a million years going to do. Cause you know, even, even they got even Martha Stewart for that, right? <laughs> Martha Stewart mm -hmm. went to jail for insider trading. So she did. there were a couple of, th there were a couple of things I knew that I was never going to do stealing trade secrets, insider trading, those were lines I didn't want to cross. So here's the deal. I use Yahoo Finance. I use it to make money because it works, not just because they're a sponsor of the show. Heck, I've been using them for years before they ever called to become a sponsor. I do a lot of investing and I need to make split second financial decisions. And that's where Yahoo Finance comes in. I trade stocks and I trade options and you can't trade them in a vacuum. You gotta know what's going on. Yahoo Finance gives you the opportunity to look at the whole picture. I mean, breaking news, editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts. I love the customizable charts. They have it all. At Yahoo Finance, I'm part of a community of over 90 million users. You heard me, 90 million folks use Yahoo Finance because they're helping you on your way to financial success. Visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com, yahoofinance.com. Let's talk about weight loss. Most of us have been there struggling with the ups and downs. You lose some weight, then it creeps back. But forget those endless cycles of juice cleanses, soup diets, and the latest fad workouts. There's a better way. The Rogue Body Program pairs a weekly weight loss shot with a real lifestyle change so you can lose weight and actually keep it off. Need support? Rogue's got you covered every step of the way. And guess what? You can do it all from the comfort of your own home. No more doctor's appointments, no more waiting rooms. It's that simple. Ready to take charge of your weight? Head over to row.co slash Adam to sign up today. Average weight loss is 15 to 20% in a year. That's with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to row.co slash Adam. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash A-D-A-M. I want to go back for a minute, okay? So you're a young actor. You had a few gigs. Then you moved to New York. And all of a sudden, you take a job as a spy? I mean, other than your friend's reference, why did you even interview to become a spy? Well, you know, I, when you when you first get to New York City, the first two things you got to get is a place to live and a job, right? So the job was kind of the priority. Gotcha. I had been acting in Philadelphia. Um, you know, I had done uh, a lot of shows at Penn. And then while I was working for my dad at the car dealership, I got hired to be the lead in a music video for a band called The Hooters, who they were actually a big band in the mid 80s. 
Yeah, and the, I remember him. And the yep. video was directed, believe it or not, by a young David Fincher. So for those of our listeners who may not recognize the name David Fincher, he's like a serious director. Yeah. He directed movies like Seven, The Social Network, uh, Fight Club. Club. Right. Who, of wow. course, um, and um, that break, you know, basically, you know, my father was kind of very upset that I was leaving the business. And then all of a sudden, when they had a world premiere of the video on MTV and back in the day, they did. They had a world premiere. They advertised it. They advertised it. And then, you know, Tuesday at 8 p.m., the world premiere video from the Hooters, you know, it played. And then, of course, it played nonstop. And when my father saw me in that video and I'm in, you know, almost every frame of that, you know, four minute video. Uh, all of a sudden he began to think, wow, you know, maybe, you know, maybe there is something in this. Um, he still didn't want me to go, <laughs> but shortly thereafter, I was booking big parts in big shows. You know, I did, I start opposite James Gandolfini in a play. I start opposite Callista Flockhart in a play. Okay. So you were, you were doing some, uh, real acting though. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm a member of the actor studio to this day. So, so you've done some some cool stuff in acting. The, certainly, the book tells some great stories. What do you think is like the coolest thing that happened to you during your acting career? Uh, you know, I think there's a certain like Forrest Gump element to the book, where I have these encounters with really famous people at critical moments in not just my life, but also in their lives. And so, one of the craziest stories is O.J. Simpson, but. The story that people ask me the most about is Paul Newman, because everybody loves Paul Newman. And, you know, he was such an amazing actor and an incredible human being. And so when I was a young guy and I became a member of the actor studio, I got cast in a play in the actor studio. We were performing it and the show was a big success. And one night, all of a sudden backstage, there's this, you know, beautiful man with eyes that were so piercing blue, I couldn't even look him in the face. And he says, uh, hey, you know, nice job, kid. Way to go. Good work. And then turned around and walked out like it was literally a 10 second encounter. But, you know, as you can imagine, Paul Newman saying something nice about your acting was a pretty big deal. Yeah. And um, I can't remember. It was a couple of days later. I come home and, uh, you know, I was with my brother was visiting and, um, you know, there was a message on the answering machine. And of course, this is an answering machine where there was a tape in it and you hit play and it rewound and you waited for it to rewind. And then it played. And it was Joanne Woodward. And she was saying, you know, that she had been there that night, too, and that they she and Paul had loved my work and they were doing a reading at their apartment and they'd love for me to come up, uh, was on a Sunday. And so, you know, I was excited, but I was also a little disappointed because, you know, I thought, you know, when they said reading, I thought they were going to ask me to read, but instead it was a reading where I, I just assumed I was going to come and listen to somebody else read. Right. But when I showed up at their apartment, which apartment does not do justice, you know, they live on museum mile, uh, on fifth Avenue, right across from central park. Um, you know, the nicest building you could ever imagine, of course, multiple doormen, I go up the door opens and I come into this foyer where there's all of this incredible artwork on the walls. And all of a sudden I realize that it's all original pieces, you know, it's, you know, Manet and Monet and Van Gogh. And so, I mean, as you know, they're already two of the most famous human beings in on the planet. And now they have all of this priceless art. And Joanne Woodward welcomes me and ushers me in. You know, she's Southern. She's incredibly kind and brings me in and sits me down and hands me a script and says, um, we're going to read this film script. You're the lead in the film script. It's about a race car driver. Paul Newman says, uh, you know, that's supposed to be my part. 
Joanne Woodward says, yeah, you're too old now. And he's he's sitting on a chaise lounge. By the way, it's Sunday at you know 1130 a.m. He's sitting on a chaise lounge with a six pack of beer at his feet. He's drinking beer the whole time we're doing this reading. And I'm doing this reading of this, you know, potential movie um, playing the race car driver <laughs> with Paul Newman sitting there watching me drinking beer. So it was a little intimidating, uh, but they were really wonderful people. That didn't happen to become Days of Thunder with Tom Cruise, did it? Uh, I think indeed it did. I was up for that movie too, Robert. <laughs> Bo, Bo, was, uh, Bo was in the pit crew in that movie. I don't know if, if he, when you saw it, but yeah, he was there. So uh, that, well, that's, that's, you did. that is actually much more. Uh, that's probably what I would get cast for. It was sad, but true. So you're an actor. You're just beginning to get your feet wet in the world of corporate espionage. What's the first tactic you learned how to use? Whew. That's a great question. The people that trained me and trained my buddy in the book, his name is Pax. They were women again, cause the, the woman who had the firm you know, thought only women could do the job. So we were learning originally from women and the women had ploys that they used, which were incredibly effective, effective where they were basically playing put upon assistant, calling another put upon assistant. And they would call and they go, oh, my boss is so horrible. He's so mean. He yells at me. He treats me so poorly. I'm going to lose my job if I don't get this information. And to my shock, assistants on the other end of the phone would go, oh, my God, it's okay. Don't panic. I mean, they, these women would even break out the tears and start crying sometimes. And to my shock, the assistants on the other end of the line would go, hey, don't worry about it. You're not going to lose your job. I'm going to help you. What do you need? Let me get it for you. I couldn't believe it. Well, of course, when we would try to use that ploy, it was completely unsuccessful because we weren't assistants. And back in the day, and we're talking, you know, mainly 90s, early 2000s, you know, most assistants were still women. So we had to learn different ploys that played to our strengths, first of all, by just being men. And what I learned, again, shocking, was that I would go and be an executive. I would portray myself as an executive within the company that I was calling. And I would go bro to bro. And to my great shock, I found senior executives to be far easier to get information from than the assistants and receptionists. Well, because I guess the senior executives didn't think that they were going to get fired by giving you information. Well, I think so. But I think I was also playing to their ego a little bit. I would always call, you know, I would go, okay, well, look, I think this guy is going to have the information I want. He's a vice president of this. I'm going to call and pretend I'm an executive vice president, you know, uh, in the, you know, uh, and I run compliance for Europe, you know, and I would put on an accent, you know. Oh, this is Gerhard calling from the office in Frankfurt. We have some European Union regulators here and we need some information from the states. Well, the vice president would go, oh my God, I got the EVP of compliance for all of Europe on the phone. Hey, hey, Gerhard, what's going on, buddy? Hey, whoa, how can I help? Well, you got a problem with the regulator? Sure. What do you need? So it was an ego play. Totally ego play and using the corporate hierarchy as a cudgel. Well, that'll do it, especially the magic word we've learned anywhere is compliance. The minute you get a call from <laughs> compliance, your blood runs cold, the hair on the back of your neck starts trying to figure out a way to get off the back of your neck. So, yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's right. When we realize that, when we go, oh, my God, everyone is afraid of compliance. You know, they're, they're the corporate version of Orwell's thought police. And you do not want to be on the wrong side of the compliance guys and, you know, now compliance guys and gals. And so what am I going to, what do I need to do to get this guy off my back and make him happy so that he leaves me alone and I never pick up the phone and hear from compliance again? 
okay, so say compliance doesn't work. Mm. What's the, uh, what's the next method? Well, uh, compliance always worked. Uh, and the next, oh, okay. the, yeah, yeah, <laughs> there you go. So you just always that. Yeah. And the next method would have been not to throw the ploy in the trash, but to just find somebody else. Because look, did I get the information from every single person I called? No. Did I get the information that my client wanted at every firm? Yes, I did. Or let me just say 99.9999% of the time, whatever the information my clients wanted, I got that information. I didn't get it every time, but eventually I'd find somebody in the firm that would get that information for me or knew that information. And one of the tricks we learned pretty quickly was that when you ran into a tough customer, somebody that wasn't going to give you the information, we had a technique for putting them to sleep. That's what we called it. And so the person... <laughs> person would be yelling and screaming, you know, I don't believe you are who you say you are and blah, blah. Okay, calm down, calm down. Look, do you want me to send you an email? I will send you an email. It will explain exactly what I'm doing. Yes, I want you to send me an email. I want you to send me an email right now. And I want it to come from the company email address. Okay, no problem. I will have it to you within an hour. It will explain. Uh, okay. Well, look, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't mean to get so upset, but I, I just have to know this is real and I, I need it. No, I will have an email to you within an hour. Worst case scenario, I'll have it to you by the end of the day. It'll explain. Okay. Okay. And they start calming down. You say, and you know what? We're, I, I got a couple other th fires I got to put out here. I guarantee you, if I can't get it to you by the end of the day, I'll have it to you first thing in the morning when you come to work. You'll have it. It'll explain everything. Okay. Okay. Sure. Look, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to get so upset, but now what have I done? I put them to sleep so that they don't warn anybody else in the company because now they're waiting for an email that's never going to come. But I have bought myself the rest of the day to get the information that my client wants. Gotcha. So it's not so much that you intend to get the information from them. They're kind of a dead end. You just calm them down so they don't pick up a phone call someone else in the company and go, hey, guys, be on the lookout. There's somebody trying to steal information from us. Yeah, there's somebody phishing us. And, and now they, the, let's say they call the compliance department or the legal department or human resources. And now that, uh, you know, the person that runs that group is going to send a company-wide email out saying, look, Somebody's phishing us. Somebody's rusing us. Somebody's scamming us. Don't talk to anybody for any reason whatsoever. Well, we do not want that email going out because that's going to make our job next to impossible. Um, and now, so that we, sounds a lot like uh, how modern day uh, scammers and online criminals work with uh, all kinds of people. I mean, so is there, are you familiar with what, uh, how, how hackers work today in getting information from sure. corporations? Sure. So, so, so has it, let me ask you this. It sounds like what you were doing back in the day was, was a, was an art form and <laughs> a, with a toolkit, but an art form. And, and nowadays, do you think it is, or has it changed a little bit? Has that game changed with LinkedIn being a, a, a you know, open, open source kind of place to go and all that? Yeah, look, it, it has for sure. But one of the things that we learned in doing this job for a, a lot of years is that whenever technology would get introduced, we would think, oh my gosh, that's the end of corporate spying. Corporate spying is dead. It's over. And then all of a sudden we would learn that that technology actually helped us, that that technology actually made it easier for us to extract more and more valuable information from corporations. So LinkedIn, for example, you know, look, I'm here to tell you that LinkedIn is missing a third of major executives are not on LinkedIn. LinkedIn cannot tell you who the rock stars are. He cannot tell you, you know, a lot of times LinkedIn isn't up to date. They're dead people on LinkedIn. It doesn't have people's current titles on LinkedIn. So LinkedIn does not answer all the questions that major corporations want to know about their top rivals. 
And then, of course, it also doesn't have kind of all of that added information about, you know, what is a firm up to, who their clients are, what do they pay their clients or what do their clients pay them? All of that information, which is, again, really, really valuable for a company to know about their competitors. So some of the, you know, the tactics you're talking about, we're, we're not talking about spies through hacking, getting into mainframe computers, things that we see in movies. We're talking about fairly straightforward things that just require someone being very suave, persistent, a bit sophisticated, and really good at what they do, right? Yeah, except that nowadays, almost all hacking uses some form of social engineering, again, what I call rusing, to assist in that in that uh, procedure, right? So let's just talk about ransomware attacks, right? When we talk about these ransomware gangs, indeed, they are gangs, right? And they have, you know, a small number. I mean, depend on the gang, of course. But they have people that it's kind of like a mission impossible where they have one person that's the social engineer. The social engineer goes in first. The social engineer learns things, how, how a network is set up, you know, how they handle encryption, how they do this, how they do that by having conversations. That information is then funneled to the hacker which makes the hacking that much easier. Then once the hacking is done, there's somebody that's kind of the financial instruments expert, and he's the one or she's the one that makes sure that they can get paid, you know, in Bitcoin or however they choose to get paid in a way that it cannot be tracked back, right? So each person has a part of that ransomware attack mission, um, and the social engineer is part of that equation. So who was your, not identifying the individuals, but the people who were part of your crew? Mm-hmm. And especially when you teamed up with the the bigger guys in London and New York, uh, what did each person in your crew do? Well, look, everybody had a different uh, skill set. Um, you know, for example, all the spies I worked with, everybody had a go-to accent, and I never heard anyone have the same go-to accent. You know, this one woman, it was the Irish. For me, it was the German. You know, for somebody else, it was English and and they would utilize these these accents to portray themselves as people because, you know, most corporations now have offices in London, in Dublin, in Frankfurt, in Tokyo, in Dallas, in Charlotte and, you know, all over the world. So you could be from anywhere and still be a major executive. A lot of times people will recognize the name. They'll go, oh, it's Gerhard Mannheim in the Frankfurt office. He runs compliance for all of Europe. They, they But they haven't spoken to Gerhard. Or maybe they heard them on a conference call. Um, a lot of times what I would do is I would Google somebody or I would call their um, phone number um, back in the day and I would hear their outgoing voice message so that I could imitate their voice. So I would hear, as this is Gerhard, um, I am not here right now. Please leave the message, that, you know, whatever. And I go, oh, I can do that accent. I can, you know. So obviously as actors, that gave us a real leg up because when you think about it, you know, if, if you, if somebody sounds, you know, like who the heck are, who's thinking that somebody's calling them and putting on a German accent or putting on an Irish accent, right? It's just, it's, it's ludicrous, you know? And that's one of the things, again, we learned is that the crazier the ploy, the crazier the ruse, the more believable it became. Have you ever been rused? <laughs> well, it's funny. I just did a spot, uh, a segment for something, which I won't go into, but I was basically saying, There was recently this um, Italian man was arrested and charged with wire fraud because he was stealing the unpublished manuscripts of famous authors. 
And he created mm. these. Yes, yes. You uh -huh. saw that, right? He created these yep. um, slightly altered but official looking email addresses. And he got literary agents, publishing house editors, international book contest judges to all fall victim and send him the unpublished books of famous authors like Margaret Atwood, who wrote The Handmaid's Tale. Now, when I heard that, I'm like, wait a second. Literary people are supposed to be super smart. Like they all went to Ivy League schools. They're like the smartest people in the proverbial room. If they can be fished and scammed, all of us can be fished and scammed, including me. You know, and I see, you know, look, we all get phishing, hacking, scamming, duping requests every day, right? Whether it's a phone call, whether it's a text, whether it's an email, and some of them are pretty damn good. And then I always tell people, um, the main thing to do when you get those is, you know, I have a 30-second rule. I don't click on anything. I don't forward anything. I don't do anything until I look at something for 30 seconds. And I make sure that if it's funky, I don't do anything. I don't touch it. You know, I'll, I'll put the device down and walk away and think about it. And then I go back and I study it. And that's when you all of a sudden realize, you know, that it's it's fake. Yeah, I used to work from publishing. So, yes. And I, and I, I may resemble your comment about people, all of us having gone to Ivy league schools, but the, the fact of the matter is, uh, we're some of the dumbest people on earth. And, um, <laughs> and well, we I'm fall. so excited to hear you finally say that. No, well, we'll fall. I mean, like the last thing on earth, anyone who's had their nose in a book, most of their life is thinking is, is there a con man on the other side of a request? They just think, oh, I'm going to do something for my author or. I'm going to do something for myself. So my first job in publishing was at a top tier publisher, literary publisher, but also popular books. Um, think big, big cookbooks, big spy books, you name it. They had big books. And um, my boss also worked part-time sideways for a very big magazine editor. And that magazine editor gave me 5,000 extra dollars a year to do one thing and one thing only, which was get manuscripts that had not yet been published by mm. authors she was interested in, he or she was interested in. Was I a spy? Yes. Well, that was corporate yes. espionage. That was corporate espionage for sure. Yes. Well, yeah. it was editorial yeah. espionage. You were helping her to steal these theoretically great books from your employer. Well, only to know that they existed and to be able to read them quickly. The other thing that I was helping them do, that was it. That was all that, that ever happened. Mm. But the other thing that I would, I would sometimes get the assignment, Bob is writing a book. Bob was famous. Bob's brother, Bill, is writing a book on the same subject. Bob and Bill hate each other. Can you mm. please find out what Bob's book is? And so <laughs> that would be my job. Now, just so that this person could tell Bill who hated Bob and at, you know, at Michael's and score some points. So my, my question, so I was spying, yes. but, um, <laughs> but it was so dumb. It was so dumb what we were spying on. Well, maybe, maybe, but you can see, and it's funny, that exact scenario you just, you just, you know, uh, you know, told me about is yeah. so common in the corporate world. They want to know what their, you know, X, Y, Z, a lot of times executive. So in other words, let's say they hate this guy at their rival firm. He's an EVP. He got, he, you know, they had both been at the same firm, but he got the big job. And now this guy left to go to another firm. And he's like, I want to screw this guy. I want to find out everything I can on him. And I'm going to take him down. I want to know who his top people are because I'm going to steal them. I want to know who his top clients are. I'm going to get his clients. 
So that gotcha. kind of, you know, animosity that you brought up there, that is really, really true across the board. Well, can I tell you that usually what I would do is go to Bob or Bill's assistant and say, Doohickey, that was my boss, Doohickey has given me the corporate card and I'm supposed to get all the information I can about Bill and or Bob. We can drink all night. You want to do it? Oh, oh. <laughs> Oh, and then at see, the end of the night, okay. I'd be like, can you just tell me, tell me what it is so I can tell Doohickey what it is? And they'd tell me and that would be the end of it. You're officially a spy now because you got drinks out of it too, right? You know what I mean? It's not just intelligence. You got to get some alcohol as well. So congratulations. You're officially a corporate spy. Nice. I'm going to be able to tell a good story to my kids at Thanksgiving. I'm really happy, Robert, that I know now know that I was a spy. Am I, is it my good spy or bad spy or are all spies the same? Uh, all spies are the same, and and I'm uh, and I'm gonna send you. It's a little badge. It says corporate spy. You know, you can wear it out in public. You know, it's just a good thing to have. You know, get you into some you know some places, or or really kicked out hard. And you're also saying that basically, unless cocktails are involved, you're not an official corporate spy, correct? Yeah, I mean, look, James Bond. Come on, you know, what I mean, if James Bond said, "I don't drink." You know what I mean? Oh, if he forget was a, it. Yeah. yeah I mean, if it's got to be shaken, not stirred. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, if he was a teetotaler, who, who, would any of us be watching? No. Before you mentioned uh, some, what it takes to be a good spy versus a bad spy, and I would have to say that I would imagine a bad spy is one that gets caught. Did you ever get caught? And actually, the same question goes to Bo, for that matter. <laughs> yeah, well, look, I think that most of the people that tried to do this job, they they found out pretty quickly that they couldn't do it. There mm -hmm. weren't too many people that uh, were able to do it and then stopped doing it. It was like, literally, you you learned within an hour that you, that you were not cut out for this job. In terms of me, you know, like, did I get caught? Look, I had a lot of close calls for sure. And, if, and as I said earlier, there were plenty of times where I got busted. That's what we called it. You know, mm -hmm. I got busted on a call where somebody said, I'm not buying what you're selling. I don't believe you. I'm not giving you any information. You know, and then as, as I discussed earlier, I would put them to sleep so that I could find somebody else within the corporation that would give me the information that I wanted. So at any point today, they would say like, hey, you're not really Gerhard. Oh, man, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. You know, I mean, now the Gerhard one was pretty foolproof. I mean, that was pretty, in, you know, I mean, I, I, I like to say, you know how many people, you know how many times people told Gerhard nine? You know, mm -hmm. well, the only thing with Gerhard that got me once, and this, it's funny, I forgot about this story, is so I'm calling somebody in, you know, whatever, New York to get some information. And I'm pretending I'm Gerhardt or whatever the German guy I'm pretending to be. You know, the guy's name could have been, you know, Hans or whatever. And I'm doing that. And all of a sudden, the person I get on the phone starts speaking German. Guten Tag. Wie geht's? And I can speak German. I did learn German in high school and college. So, you know, I'm proficient, but I'm not fluent. But if I'm saying I'm this German guy in Germany, I would be fluent. So what I had to do was very quickly, like say one or two sentences in German and basically find a way to switch into English, you know? Um, and, uh, and I, and I did that and, and it worked and it was fine because Germans, of course, are very proud of the fact that they speak flawless English. So they are usually pretty, they're pretty quick to switch over to English. If I'd had a French speaker on the phone and I had been doing the same ploy, pretending I was French, I would have been screwed. Um, answer your question, Travis. I never got caught. Nope. Nope. 
So, Bo and Adam, you guys know I'm a bit of a uh, privacy geek, if you will. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you are. Yeah, totally. I, I really just don't like the idea that just about anyone can find you online, can find out where you live or your email address, or your phone number or anything. I just think that entire idea is super creepy. There's so much of my data already out there, but is there something that you can do? Yeah, actually, you can use Delete Me. Delete Me is a service that pretty much does the heavy lifting for you, where they go to all the data brokers that they have on file and uh, just pull your data and delete it on a regular basis. I use it. I like it. And they make it quick, easy, and safe to remove your personal data online. Well, yeah, with these data brokers, they can accumulate huge amounts of your personally identifiable information. And if all that information gets into the hands of a bad actor, that opens you up to a lot of risk. And if you act now, you can get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash WTH and use promo code WTH. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash WTH and enter promo code WTH at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash WTH, promo code WTH, which stands for What the Hack. And we thank you for supporting Delete Me and What the Hack. We know the spying is still going on, and social engineering obviously does not stop at corporations. It's part of just about every scam you can imagine. So for our listeners, you mentioned the 30-second pause rule earlier. I, I think that's a really great idea. We constantly tell our listeners to go slow, um, since a lot of scammers kind of try to get you to you know act as quickly as possible before thinking. Um, what are some other red flags that someone, either at a corporation or just if they're getting a... Um, you know, a scam call out of the blue uh, that should tip them off immediately that someone is not really on up and up. Well, I think number one, you just said it. it it's an emergency. It's an emergency. You, you must do this right now. You got to click on this right now. You've been hacked. Your money's going to disappear. You know, your house is going to burn down, whatever it is. It's an emergency. So that's the first thing. There's also an element of somebody trying to be your friend, right? Somebody trying to be your friend. Somebody's. I'm doing you a favor here. I'm helping you out. I figured this thing out. There's this problem, you know, whatever. So that there's that kind of thing where somebody's trying to be your friend. I always say, you know, be, you know, it's like, beware of Greeks bearing gifts, right? That old, that old quote. You called it the Ben Franklin rule. Could you elaborate mm. on that in the book? Yeah. So basically, you know, there's this idea that, you know, if I, um, do you a favor, um, you know, what we think, this is what we think. If I do you a favor, you're more likely to do me a favor. But the Benjamin Franklin effect is a little different, which is that if I get you to do me a favor, I've now made it more likely that you'll do me another favor and another favor and another favor. Because somehow I've tricked you into believing that I am a good person and I am worthy of this and that you need to do this because either I'm more important than you or because I'm making you feel important by you helping me. But that's what the Benjamin Franklin effect is. It's very counterintuitive. But it's sort of like friendship. Like I do stuff for my friends all the time and they do stuff for me. The only difference is it's not transactional. Right. And you've known them for a while. <laughs> oh, that's so this is an automatic. You just met them and oh, let me uh, help you to the car. Let me help you with this. Let me help you meet that guy. Let me help you do this. Yeah, yeah. that sounds more like a sociopath. Mm. So we have move slowly and be standoffish. Anything else? <laughs> that sounds like you, Travis. 
Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm feeling pretty good right now. Yeah. Oh, my well, God. One of the rules of thumb we always talk about in the show is if anyone ever contacts you and asks you to authenticate yourself, hang up. Right. right? Mm -hmm. because, yeah. because you didn't initiate the call. Well, it's the same thing for a company. If someone calls you and asks you to authenticate the company or something going on in the company, regardless of who they say there are, they are. Right. You know, I guess your advice would be get their information, call them back, right? Well, you know, the remember the the quote that Reagan had, you know, with the the nuclear arms with the Soviet Union, you know, trust but verify, right? Wasn't that mm -hmm. Reagan? Yeah. Um, trust but verify. Forget trust. Forget it. Just verify. You know, so the idea that I'm going to trust that you are who you say you are. No, verify, verify. Mm. Don't have any, any hesitation to make sure that you verify everybody that you're talking to about every, you know, because, you know, we all get calls all the time and some of them might be legit. Hey, this is American Express. Your card has been hacked. Well, how do you know it's American Express? You got to verify it's American Express. You know what I mean? You know, um, and so in those situations, I say, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hang up. And I'm going to call the number on the back of my card and I'm going to start over. And, and you know what they say? Yeah. They say, hey, that's a good thing to do. No problem. Go ahead and do that. Because I don't know that that, you know, that that's correct, that it's American Express calling me or, you know, who, you know whoever is calling you. So I yep. think the, the verification, always verify. And the other thing is, if, you, if, you, if someone comes at you with a red hot potato, you know, just don't. Don't go for it because the fact of the matter is if there's something important that you need to do, they're going to get back to you the next day and the day after that and the day after that. And no one ever, ever died by not paying a bill when it was due. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Obviously, I've written this book, so I've outed myself as a spy. Um, and now I've switched over, you know, from proverbial offense to defense. And now I speak at conferences and on podcasts like this trying to clue people in as to, you know, what spies and hackers and scammers, what are the tricks that they're using to get people to do things and corporations to do things that they shouldn't do. Robert, listen, this was great. We truly appreciate you taking time to talk to us. Your book is great fun. The book is called Ruse. And where can people get it? Uh, I always tell people just go to my website. Uh, it's just my name, Robert Kerbeck, K-E-R-B-E-C-K.com. Um, you can buy books from wherever you'd like to buy books from, and you can also see the trailer, um, for Ruse because Ruse is being adapted into a TV series. Oh, very cool. Oh, wow. All right. Yeah. So now we're with somebody who's now going to be an even more famous TV star. Ah, uh, I don't think they're going to have me act in it. For fortunately for me, I don't want to ruin my own show. <laughs> and now it's time for a tinfoil swan. Our paranoid takeaway to keep you safe online. So what is it this week, Travis? What is bothering you? Way too much, admittedly. Yeah, I'm in the process of buying a house and we're getting ready for the big move. Ugh, the worst. This is so not a fun time. Not at all. So there are a lot of moving parts, but one thing that's really stood out to me during this entire process was that the moment we applied for a mortgage, my wife's phone started ringing off the hook with calls from mortgage brokers. Welcome to the real world. I mean, when you apply for a mortgage, the three major credit reporting agencies market is what's called a trigger lead, meaning you're a prospective customer or a mark yeah. or a target. But yeah, I mean, or chum in the water. You, you know, however, you do not have to keep getting those calls. 
That's right. I mean, you can block those at optoutprescreen.com and get on the national do not call registry. Yeah, and that's probably why I haven't gotten any of these calls, but my wife has gotten the hundreds. The larger issue that's related to it is what we just spoke about with Robert in that movie in general opens you up to a whole slew of scams, specifically social engineering scams. 100%. And if you're shopping around for a mortgage, you need to give each of them your social security number, your personal information. It's like a smorgasbord uh, for identity thieves. And it's not just mortgage brokers. I mean, we recently moved to Nashville, and as soon as we filled out the change of address form, we started getting mountains of junk mail for contractors, home repair, you name it. The U.S. Postal Service does the same thing that the credit reporting agencies do with trigger leads. Some of that can be useful, though. Um, you know, I've gotten some good deals on repairs to my house for direct mail campaigns. I am also, as you all know, a fan of advertising. I guess it's so targeted these days. It pretty much usually sends me something I need. Yeah, but as we've seen many times before, it's really easy to make a postcard just look like it's from a legitimate business or to make a website making it look like it's from a legitimate mortgage broker when it's in fact just a big old scam. Sure, sure. And when you're moving, you're usually the clamp. I mean, you're overwhelmed, right? You look for the best prices so you can save money when possible. Yep, which makes us the perfect target for scammers. So if you're moving, what should you do? Don't move, just stay put. No, <laughs> it's easier <laughs> than done, but, but go slow. I mean, on all of it, because you have a lot to do, but you just have to, don't allow yourself to be rushed. Just move her outside, there's this, there's that. Everyone wants to get paid right now. Too bad, go slow. There's always a lot going on over the course of a move, but there's a lot of money changing hands too. Take the time to check reviews, make sure that the businesses you're dealing with are for real and not poorly reviewed. Read every document before you sign it. Look, there's a lot of paperwork. Someone dishonest can just sneak in a few clauses here and there, and it can cost you a fortune. Right, and if you're moving with your spouse or partner, just consider dividing the labor and make it one person's job to do the vetting and research. Or you can ask a friend or relative to help with some. If it gets them out of helping with the actual move itself, they might be more willing. The stress of moving can be overwhelming, but it's temporary. The stress of getting scammed while moving can last for years. So above all, just be careful. And that is our tinfoil swan. What the Hack with Adam Levin is a production of Loud Tree Media, produced by Andrew Stephen and Travis Taylor. Our executive producers are Bo Friedlander and Adam Levin. That's me. You can find us online at adamlevin.com and Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Adam K. Levin. Come back next week. And rate and review. It really helps people find the show. 